Chapter 11, Rocky Beginnings On June 2, 1948, we sailed from Bremenhaven on a refurbished American military ship called Ernie Pyle, named after an American journalist and war correspondent who died in World War II. Each of us received six dollars as pocket money. There were many displaced persons on that boat, Jews and non-Jews. Many of the women were from the Baltic countries, mainly Latvia and Estonia, and the Jews on the boat suffered from these women's anti-Semitic remarks. Anti-Semitism was the last thing we expected to accompany us on our way to a new life. I got seasick as soon as we hit the English Channel. There was no way I could get up, never mind eat anything. The nurse insisted I drink a lot so that I wouldn't get dehydrated and somehow talked me into eating half a grapefruit. That was all I ate for three days. But I improved for the rest of the voyage. Avi was perfectly well and had a really good time in the dining room, receiving as many portions of ice cream as she wanted after dinner, as the dining room was practically empty because of mass seasickness. Eventually, our ocean crossing came to an end, and we arrived in Halifax, Canada, on June 11, 1948, at the famous Pier 21, where most new immigrants landed at that time. On our arrival at Pier 21, members of the Halifax Jewish community were waiting and greeted us with words of welcome and baskets of goodies including foods we had not seen for years or when it came to bananas, ever. We were moved by this generous gesture and heartily accepted and ate their offerings. Our group of garment workers was among the first Holocaust survivors to reach Halifax after a group of orphaned youngsters who had been admitted to Canada before us and the community was excited to greet us. At the same time, not far off, the Baltic women were being greeted by nuns who were distributing holy cards with images of saints on them. The women noticed the difference in the gifts we were receiving. They were jealous and used choice words to express their hostility. We thought we had left anti-Semitism behind, but we again realized that we hadn't. From Halifax, he boarded the train for Montreal. We chose Montreal only because our good friend Clara had an aunt who had settled there in the late 1930s and wanted her orphaned niece with her. This aunt was to meet Clara at the station, and when we arrived at Windsor Station, the aunt was not alone. She had brought two friends who came out of sheer curiosity to look at us deep refugees survivors. We were a novelty, like monkeys in a cage, in a way that we did not quite comprehend. We thought we were just ordinary human beings like they were. One of these friends, Mrs. Holtzman, was from Slovakia and spoke to us in Hungarian. 
The women had many questions, but it was all very friendly. Mrs. Holtzman took a liking to me, and suddenly she said, You did. I would like to adopt you. She had a young daughter, she said, but would like to help me. This took me by surprise, and I responded by telling her that my sister, Avi, also came with me, and I also had a brother who was still in Germany. Would she like to adopt them as well? She said that she would not, that my siblings were already adults. She was very nice, though, and when she found out that we would be staying on Henry Julian Avenue, only a few doors away from her, she was so happy. From then on, Mrs. Holtzman became our mentor. She and her husband and daughter Clara were incredibly kind to us, and we had many dinners at their table. Their friendship meant so much to us, alone in a new and strange country. The Canadian Jewish Congress paid the first month rent for our furnished room. They expected that we would be able to pay rent from our earnings after that. When we arrived at the flat, we could not believe we were in the new world. We faced numerous steps on a curving staircase outside the building, which we had to climb to get to the door. This was the housing style in Montreal then. Every building on the street had that kind of staircase, quite treacherous during the winter months with all the snow. The room was clean but rather dismal and uninviting. There was a double bed, a yellowing vinyl window shade and curtains, a square vinyl top table, two old chairs and a chest of drawers and built-in cupboard for clothing. The floor was covered with a dubiously colored oilcloth for easy washing. We were told we would have kitchen privileges, which meant that we could cook in the kitchen using the landlady's utensils. An older widowed lady owned the flat and shared it with her adult daughter and son, Ida and Abe. She had another daughter who was, she wanted us to know right away, married to a rich guy. The rent was $30 a month. We settled in immediately, put away our meager belongings, took showers, and went to bed. We tried to sleep, but both of us ended up crying. The mattress sucked so badly. The next morning after breakfast, we felt better and more positive. Crummy room or not, at least we were now in Canada. When we had arrived in Montreal, instructions were given over the public address system at the train station in English and Yiddish. Mrs. Holtzman had told us not to worry that she was listening to all the announcement and would know exactly what we would have to do after the three days of rest. So we didn't listen to the Yiddish announcements. We left everything up to her. We had three free days to rest or do whatever we wanted before we had to present ourselves to be assigned to our respective jobs. We used the three days to walk around the city trying to get acquainted with the streets 
laughing about some of the encounters we had that could only happen to ignorant newcomers. The three days of rest over, Mrs. Holtzman came to tell us that we had to be assigned to our workplace. It so happened that Mrs. Holtzman had not listened attentively to the instruction and made a big mistake. She took us to the offices of the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union and not to the Garment Commission's office. At the union office, Mrs. Holtzman told an official about our backgrounds and said that we needed jobs. The official dealing with us was very understanding and waived our initiation fee. We were then sent to a dress factory where we started working that day. The small factory was located in an old building on Blurry Street, and again, we had to climb many stairs. It was very hot and humid that day, truly unpleasant, and it was worse indoors. We were not used to such humidity. To my utter chagrin, we were supposed to assemble complete dresses in this factory, not just straight seams as we had in Bergen-Belsen. Within a few days, the Garment Commission officials called Mrs. Holzman, as she had given her name as our mentor, asking her where we were and why we hadn't presented ourselves for work. She told them that she had already taken us to the union office to get work. She apologized profusely, telling them that the mistake was all hers not to blame us. They were angry at her but did not want to start a fight with the union, and so they let the matter rest. This whole misunderstanding had an adverse impact on us. Our trip from Europe to Canada was free, paid for by the International Refugee Organization, IRO. However, the train trip from Halifax to Montreal was paid for by the Garment Commission, which was required to pay the government for every person who started working for them. Now, Avi and I were excluded from this gift, and we had to pay for that trip ourselves. And so, by government order, each of us had to start repaying $60 right away. Each week, $1 was deducted from our very slim paycheck of only $8 a week for me and 12 for Avi. It was a tough beginning. Mrs. Holtzman wanted to cover the payments, but we did not accept. We were working in a unionized factory, making a better salary. But money was not my biggest problem. After all, we had started working, sort of. At least Avi had started working. I was another matter. I had no dressmaking skills at all. When we received a bundle containing the pieces of the dresses, we had to assemble the parts right away as fast as we could into a whole dress. But I didn't recognize the pieces, which was a sleeve, front or back, top or skirt, a collar. The four women spotted my predicament and my agitation right away and tried to help. 
while I slowly learned the basic elements of dressmaking. I was constantly nervous and despaired at my obvious inadequacy. One day I noticed that a liquid kept dropping onto the garment I was working on. I looked at the ceiling. Was it leaking? Then Avi, who sat across from me, said, Yutko, sweat is pouring down your face and will stain the dress. Wipe your face right away. I call those beads of sweat my sheer misery drops. I did gradually learn how to put a dress together from those puzzle pieces, but I was hopelessly slow. Speed mattered as we did piecework and were paid for each assembled dress. The faster you work, the more money you earned. For an inexperienced person like me, it was a tough grind. We had worked at this factory for four weeks when the very apologetic boss told A.V. and me that we were not producing fast enough, and as he had only 12 machines, he had to let us go. Our employer, a Jewish man who had been a factory worker himself during the war, had compassion. He came to tell us that he had spoken to his brother-in-law, who was a foreman in a large dress factory with 50 machine operators, and he would hire us. There, it would not matter very much if two operators were slow. We were grateful and happy. Our unemployed status lasted only one day. In our new jobs, under the tutelage of Mrs. Wallace, originally... Valasevsky, a very kind, gentle, and patient Ukrainian-Canadian forewoman, we learned to work well, and she showed us shortcuts to achieve greater speed. In time, we earned enough to make a modest living, a new expression for us. Naturally, I never became as good or as fast as Avi. I continued to have problems with sewing zippers into slippery velour and velvet dresses. They look just awful. <laughs> I have no idea how those dresses were ever sold. We made new friends quite quickly. The secretary and bookkeeper at our first job, Gertie Goodman, befriended us. She was the second Canadian after the Holtzman family, who invited us to her home for dinner. I remember that she served a salad, which was something entirely new to us then, and calf liver. She belonged to the United Jewish People's Order, Yuchpo, a left-wing Jewish organization, and she drew us in as well. Sam, her husband, was a staunch socialist. They were very kind to us and helped us a lot, mainly by encouraging us when we seemed down. Sam would tell us, converse in English, no matter how poorly, just speak it. At the Yuchpo, we made other acquaintances. We weren't anything definite politically at that point, although socialist ideas were not foreign or unwelcome to us. They had reached us via Bershke and in the Bergen-Belsen DP camp. But it didn't matter. We just felt comfortable with people who genuinely took an interest in us. In time, we made other friends, too. 
one couple, Claire and Maurice Miller, had a convertible automobile and invited us on some of their car trips, introducing us to northern Quebec's beauty. I remember Avi and I sitting on the back seat, enjoying the wind in our hair, not realizing what the end result would be, tangled hair that looked like a couple of old mops. But the trip was fascinating. We went on a short cruise on the picturesque Saguenay River and saw interesting places like Arvida and Shikutumi. Claire and Morris were the first friends who were truly interested in our Holocaust experiences, and they asked us many pointed questions on this trip. We had long discussions, but came to the realization that there was no way to adequately explain or define even our bare existence in a camp dedicated to mass annihilation. We remained good friends for many decades. Claire told us, if you need to buy anything, clothing or furnishings, just tell me. I can get you anything wholesale. And that's how we bought our first new winter coats at a greatly reduced price. Maurice died more than a decade ago, but I'm still in touch with Claire. In general, though, we didn't speak much about the Holocaust, especially when we noticed bizarre reactions even from Jews. We brought the horrors right to their doorsteps, too close to ignore, and yet there was very little interest. They simply didn't want to know. Many people weren't particularly refugee-friendly either. Even those survivors who had relatives in Canada weren't always cared for very well by their relatives. The discussion about the Holocaust when it happened was so inane. Someone would want to know details, and the survivor would say something about acute hunger, and the response would be, We had a tough time, too. The butter was rationed during the war years. These responses were actually uttered. And so we kept quiet and got busy with daily life getting acquainted with our new surroundings and slowly overcoming culture shock. In the meantime, political events were changing the world around us. With the end of the hot war came the cold war. We Jews were always affected by the prevailing historical conditions, and so it was during the cold war. Yesterday's political friends became enemies, and yesterday's enemies were now friends. Communist countries started to minimize or hide what happened to Jews in their countries during the Holocaust. The monuments they erected in memory of the victims of World War II did not specifically mention Jews. The Holocaust as a genocide, a horrendous singular historical event, was commemorated only by Yad Vashem, built in Israel in 1953. In America and Canada, there were no museums yet, and the Holocaust was very distant. With the spread of McCarthyism in the 1950s, 
there was heightened political repression and a campaign spreading fear of alleged communist influence in America. Ironically, this atmosphere of fear most affected those survivors who were proud of their work in the resistance. But now they were being cautioned not to talk about their experiences so as not to be accused of being sympathetic to communism. They were now thought of as being on the wrong side of history. Shashtil, shahash, these survivors were told, or you will be accused of being a pinko or a fellow traveler. So there was temporary quiet about heroism against the Nazis. The democratically elected Bundestag, the federal government in West Germany, was now America's friend, and the denazification program ended. When, in 1960, the bombshell news hit that Eichmann had been captured in Argentina by the Mossad, Israel's intelligence agency, and would stand trial in Jerusalem and be judged by the newly created Jewish state, there was subdued jubilation among Jews, but the media condemned Israel for disregarding international law. The philandering media, how soon it forgot what the Holocaust was all about, if it ever wanted to know to begin with. But this was a turning point. With the Eichmann trial, the entire era of the Hurban, the great destruction, the genocide was revealed. And as it came to the surface again, it drew the attention of the world with all its sordid, terribly disturbing and lethal details. The trial transcripts recorded the heart-wrenching stories of survivors, told in their own voices in the language they could explain it best, often Yiddish. Everything was still fresh. This was the start of Holocaust survivors giving public testimony, a phenomenon that later spread worldwide. Lotzi arrived from Germany not long after we did and came to live with us. Our landlady had a small room, really a hole in the wall behind the kitchen, just big enough for a bed and a wardrobe, and Lotzi's suitcase under the bed where he kept some of his clothing. The landlady charged $20 a month for his extra room, so we were now paying $50 for two rooms, a heavy financial burden for us at that point. Lotzi was able to find employment as a silkscreen printer. Like most new immigrants, we had a difficult time in our adopted country in the beginning. The emotional and psychological package we came with was put on the back burner, and we focused on our ongoing life and future. Our first priority was to improve our skills so that we could make a living. Then we tried to learn the languages that allowed us to communicate properly and absorb the culture around us. Learning to decipher menus in restaurants and actually be served what we thought we ordered was a small but necessary achievement. At work, we tried to manage the best we could, and there was slow but steady improvement. 
To add to our difficulties, we had various conflicts with our landlady. She assumed we were ignorant and had trouble understanding that we were human beings just like her family and that we came from advanced cultures. Thus, the first conflict started. That summer in Montreal, Avi and I noticed that the prevailing fashion was long skirts and dresses. We wanted to look like fashionable Canadians, and so out of our very meager earnings, we managed to squeeze out $5 for each of us to buy one summer dress. We had shorter dresses from Europe, which were good for work, but walking to work and back home, we didn't have money to travel by streetcar. We wanted to look like locals. That June and July were hot and humid, a climate we were not used to, and by the time we would get home from work, we would be soaking wet from perspiration. The only summer dresses we owned had to be washed, dried, and ironed every day so that they would look presentable the next day. We also needed to shower every day to keep clean and refreshed. That's when all hell broke loose. One day when we arrived home, hot and tired, our landlady was waiting for us with a torrent of demeaning words. You, DPs? She sped the words out like dirt. Dare to shower every day when my Canadian children take a bath only once a week. In Auschwitz, a pail of water was good enough for you and your sisters, and in my Canadian home you're showering every day? Ha! No way! She was yelling by the last sentence and banging the table. Amy and I were taken aback by the tone and insulting language and started to cry. Then Amy got angry and yelled back. We are not charity cases. We are paying you $50 a month for two crummy rooms, and that's almost twice as much as you rent for the entire flat. You make a lot of money from us DPs, and that's exploitation. Avi also pointed out that our rent included kitchen privileges and hot water usage every night. But it was no use talking sense to this elderly but rather ill-willed stingy woman. Especially hurtful was her comparison of normal life in Montreal to Auschwitz. Did we ever regret telling her anything about our trials and tribulations in the camps? Who knew she would throw it back to us as an accusation? Later in the evening, we related the whole conflict to her children, Ida and Abe, and they were more reasonable and promised to square things with their mother. Our landlady calmed down after that, but we remained uneasy in the flat and started to think about moving. When our contract with the garment factory was coming to an end, we had to think about making other changes. I could not work as a dental technician despite the skills I learned at Ort 
because in Quebec at that time one had to be a Canadian citizen to practice as a dental technician. That would take five years to happen, by which time I would have forgotten most of the required skills. But I wanted to earn a better salary than I ever could with sewing, and I imagined I would enjoy office work more. After completing the free language classes offered by the Canadian Jewish Congress, I enrolled at McGill University's part-time English extension course. My plan was to sign up for a business course when my English was good enough. Lotzi decided to study accounting, and Avi was going to take a dress designing course. By the time our contract ended, Avi, who was now a very good sample maker, got a special placement by the union. We were in no hurry, but at least we had plans. Before I started a new factory job, I went on an unexpected vacation driving with some friends to Victoria, B.C. This trip, my very first vacation, was unforgettable. Except for the six-week stay in Vienna in 1946 and driving around Quebec, I had never traveled anywhere enjoyable. But now I was seeing the full beauty of Canada with all its variety of scenery from Montreal to the flat wheat fields in Saskatchewan to the majestic and breathtaking Rocky Mountains. We entered the Rockies at Pocahontas Jasper National Park. Driving south through the mountains towards the Columbia Icefield, then Lake Louise and Banff, I was treated to additional glorious landscape and was awed. I didn't miss the factory and dressmaking one iota. Instead, I gained a new respect for Canada's size and natural grandeur. Returning from this wonderful vacation, I found a job in another dress factory, Kerner Dress Company, as a piecework operator like before. By that time, I was considered experienced, and I had good command of English and also some ability to converse in French. I was also well acquainted with the method of payment. A prize committee of three people chosen from the ranks of the factory's dress operators would examine a new garment, assess how long it would take to sew one, and based on that, how many dresses could be produced in an eight-hour workday. They would then establish how much money an operator would make in a day. Naturally, complicated and fussy dresses take longer to make, and the price per piece had to be set accordingly so that we could make a decent living while working on those garments. After consulting with the rest of the workers, the committee would present the employer with a price per garment. The employer would, of course, start bargaining with the committee and offer much less. This was called the confrontational bargaining approach. If all went well, with haggling and compromises on each side, we would eventually come to an agreement and the dress would go into production. Every new garment went through this process, which was tedious but necessary. 
If the committee and the boss could not agree on a price, a union representative was summoned to negotiate. Officially, the union rep was supposed to represent the workers' interests, but that was often not the case. I am not exactly sure how or why I was chosen as the third member of the price committee at Kerner Dress Company. Perhaps it was because my English and French were good and I was an outspoken, fearless worker's advocate. Certainly not because I was an excellent dress operator. The other two committee members were French-Canadian. It happened one day that the boss showed us a very fancy, complicated sample dress that had been brought in from New York. He had obtained a large order for it from Simpson's department store. I can't remember how much we asked per piece with that dress, but I recall that there was a 75 cents difference between our asking price and the boss's offer. That was a huge difference. We couldn't come to terms, so the boss called the union rep, who thought we were really backward. He was trying to be conciliatory and said, girls, girls, oh, we were always just girls, and then suggested that we start sewing the dress and then come to terms. We were shocked. Once we started making the dress, we would never win the price we needed. No, all three of us agreed that we would not start sewing without agreeing on a price. We haggled back and forth some more, but we couldn't come even close to the price we wanted. We presented Mr. Kerner's final offer to 40 dress operators, and they in unison said no. Either we get the amount we need or we don't sew. But the boss was adamant and would not change his final offer. So the three of us on the prize committee walked right back to the factory and simply turned off the power to all the machines. We went on what was called a wildcat strike without the support of the union rep. After all, it was our livelihood that was at stake. We would not start working. Mr. Kerner came to the factory to talk to us. He pointed to me and told me, come back to the office. Tell me, he said, what is a nice Jewish girl like you doing on the price committee? I said, Mr. Kerner, this nice Jewish girl also has to make a living, and with what you are offering, none of us can. Finally, the union rep came back, and we settled for 15 cents less than we had asked for. It was a rewarding fight. The dress went into production immediately. I am sure that both Mr. Kerner and Simpsons made a handsome profit, and we, girls, made decent salary to boot. I don't know how all this came about. I was in such a weak position, with no parents, no rich, powerful people behind me, only my equally poor but loyal siblings. My job was very important. But something told me that there was also social justice. 
Maybe my Hashomer Hatzair sister Bershke beckoned. As it happened, this would be the last dress factory I worked in. There was another moment not long after when this same kind of strange mixture of foolish and desperate courage took hold of me. After I finished my business course when I was 22, I had to look for an office job that would pay enough so I wouldn't have to be a burden to Avi or Lotzi. I said goodbye to all my co-workers at Kerner Dress Company, wished them continued well-being, and in turn they hugged me and wished me a better future. But it wasn't easy to find an office job without at least two years of Canadian experience. Plus, though my typing was immaculately accurate, it proved to be too slow. I wondered why everybody was in such a hurry and needed speed typists. After six weeks of job searching and interviewing, I saw a tiny advertisement in the Adler, a Montreal Jewish newspaper, seeking assistant bookkeeper with typing ability for a textile wholesale company's office. Ask for Mr. Sam Macklin. The next morning, I was at the address, the small newspaper had in my hand, and was greeted by Mr. Macklin Jr., the son, pipe in his mouth and dark rim glasses on top of his head. After I introduced myself, he indicated to Jack, the bookkeeper, to get a desk ready, and I understood immediately that he wanted to test my typing. I really wanted to get this job, and once again I gambled. I said, Mr. Macklin, if you have in mind to test my typing, I am leaving. He pushed his glasses to the tip of his nose, looked at me curiously, and asked, Why? I told him that I get nervous when my typing was watched and couldn't perform properly. He smiled and said, you're hired. Just like that. I was stunned and extremely happy. I was to be Jack's assistant and start the next morning. It was the beginning of an entirely new phase of my life in Canada, and I gladly waved goodbye to piecework. Jack proved to be a real mensch, and a very patient and thorough teacher, and I learned quickly. Much of the typing I had to do was for Mr. Macklin Jr., who was involved with building a new curling club for Jews in Montreal because the existing one did not allow Jews to join. With my background, that was very disturbing news for me. In Canada, too, I asked. On the home front, we finally moved. Lotzi found us a flat on a busy street, St. Lawrence Boulevard, in the home of a non-Jewish Hungarian couple, Mr. and Mrs. Schöreg. They had a huge apartment with many rooms, and we rented two very nice rooms for $45 with all privileges. We were treated with respect and kindness, and Mrs. Schöreg often served us lovely dinners cooked with real Hungarian flavor. 
She was a good cook and a very decent lady. Avi and I witnessed a frightening scene while living in this flat. Another slice of history. One weekend morning in 1952, we became aware of a loud, unfamiliar noise coming from the street. From our windows, we saw a large crowd of young women demonstrating. They were workers on strike against the French-Canadian department store Depuis Frères. The strike was loud, but peaceful. We watched as police on horseback rushed into the crowd of women indiscriminately to disperse them. Several of the women were injured and many of them were crying and shouting in anger at the police. With our Holocaust memories, Avi and I were simply shocked and terrified to see something like this happening in Montreal. Police brutality was permitted in Canada, too. We were at the Schurig apartment for a couple of years and then moved a few times. One move was to Outremont, a welcome upgrade to a very nice district and a beautiful apartment we shared with our friends Dora and Otto Schmilowicz and their young son. The expansion of the Schmilowicz family necessitated our next move. Avi and I found a place of our own in the Park Extension District, a newly developed working-class neighborhood where the two of us could easily afford to rent a lovely apartment in a new building, all modern, sparkling clean. Financially, we were much better off now. Avi had graduated with a diploma in dress designing, but was afraid to leave the security she had as a sample maker. But she made good money and stayed with sample making until she retired at the age 61. Lottie, who now went by Leslie, had finished his accounting courses and moved to Toronto, where most of his friends from Bergen-Belsen had settled down and he thought it would be easier to find work. A couple of years later, he married and moved to Detroit, where he worked as a controller for 20 years. At this point, I was no longer working for Mr. McLean, though we had parted in a most cordial way. I had received a better offer from three friends who had started a real estate business, Concordia Estates Limited. The company was managing several mid-sized apartment buildings for absentee owners. Not only was the pay double, I was attracted to the challenge of learning different skills and having new experiences. I didn't know it then, but this would be my last job in Montreal. In this new position, I maintained the accounting books and dealt with the service people and tenants, eventually becoming an assistant property manager. Being multilingual came in handy, as I was the main contact for tenants, many of whom were immigrants. I remember once typing a letter while one of my bosses was standing behind me. When I finished, he asked if he could see the letter. Surprised, I handed it to him. 
You were typing in English, but conversing with the tenant on the phone in Yiddish. How do you do that? Sheer talent, I said jokingly. It was tricky to work for friends, but with mutual respect and lots of humor, it worked out well. Humans, I realized in this job, were unpredictable in a variety of their demands. I learned to expect the unexpected and to deal with it mostly successfully. Though I must confess, I never became a speed typist. Thank you.